Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today on the show, I'm joined by the psychotherapist, Nick Carmody, who has an incredibly wide-ranging background, both in academics and in personal experience. Now, we're going to get into his personal story in just a minute, but here's a little bit about him to set the stage. Nick, in 2010, you experienced two life-changing traumatic brain injuries, just eight months apart, and the resulting changes in brain function, personality, and emotional processing along with other intense personal experiences, created an obsession-like need to understand and confirm these experiences and served as motivation to go back to school and work in the psychological field. Your education includes an undergraduate degree in criminal justice from Concordia University in Wisconsin, a law degree from the John Marshall Law School in Chicago, and a master's of science from Tiffin University in Ohio. You're now in private practice based in Denver, Colorado and works with low-income children who've experienced trauma, many of whom are currently in the foster system. So Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you, I appreciate you having me. Now Nick, one of the things that immediately drew me to you was your psychoanalysis of Donald Trump, as well as your writings about the GOP and how it's transformed into this sycophantic cult-like party that we're seeing, and obviously we've spent a lot of time and effort on that. But before that, I wanna get a little bit into your background. So can you explain a little bit, how does one have not only one traumatic brain injury, but two in less than a year. Well, what often happens after the first one is you're in a state of fogginess or haziness. And so you're not necessarily sharp. You're not necessarily as lucid as you normally are. And so uh, the second one was kind of the byproduct of dealing with the symptoms of the first one. And it was essentially a car accident, but not really in the, the normal sense. But, you know, it resulted in, you know, the second TBI. And so when you have an injury such as this, it sounds like that there is the medical diagnosis. But in your description and your experience, there was also psychological and emotional effects of it. So talk a little bit about how that works as you're trying to come back from this first one, you're hit with a second one. What's a day like when you're trying to recover from one of those? Well, one of the things about brain injuries is it tends to be a very abstract injury. Since it's such a complex organ in the brain, everybody's experience with it and symptoms are different depending on the force of the impact, the area of the brain that's hit, your recovery environment. It's different than you have a broken arm, all right, it's four to six weeks, you're fully physically recovered, and now go back to work or go back to doing whatever you're going to do. But when it, you have a brain injury, even though you may be physically healed, you know, there are certain aspects of it that may take a, a bit longer to heal. And because, you know, it's not something that you can see like a, a wound that's physically healed, you know, that abstract nature of that injury can make it very difficult for people who may not, you know, their timetable in your personal life may be a little bit more expedited than what the actual healing process is from a, you know, an intellectual, a psychological, an emotional level. And so that can have a very isolating experience for the people who deal with these brain injuries. And that's pretty consistent with the people that I've worked with who have had brain injuries. Now, listen, I'm lucky to say I never had a brain injury, but can you give us a little bit of background on what it's like? 
What's the feeling as you're trying to climb out of this? As you said, it seems like even with the best neurological science we have today, still pretty hard to pinpoint. So what's that like personally? Yeah, one of the things that I experienced was because the first one was over my left eye and the left hemisphere of the brain, it affected my speech. It wasn't so much, you know, your left hemisphere of speech and language. It wasn't so much that I couldn't speak, but it was as if there was a, a clutch missing or slipping that would engage my mind and my mouth. And so, you know, that was frustrating in itself. One of the other experiences that I had was that, you know, maybe prior to the brain injuries, on a scale of one to 10, something may have to register as like a seven or eight in intensity, you know, emotionally for me to cry. You know, after brain injuries, maybe, you know, it was like a three, especially if it involved my daughter who was, you know, my first brain injury happened five weeks after she was born. So that whole recovery process was, you know, through her infancy, through, you know, toddlers. And then I went through a really toxic divorce when she was around three or four. So that was kind of the combination. And there were some personality disorder issues that I was also having to deal with in my personal life. You know, the combination of, you know, trying to navigate and understand the changes in brain function and personality while also dealing with the toxicity of those personality disorders, you know, it got pretty dark. And, you know, part of that need to understand these experiences and, you know, basically to try to figure out if I was the crazy one or not, that's what kind of led me back into school and to pursue psychology and understanding those experiences, you know, along the way, that's when I started to realize, you know, what was going on with Trump, because I was able to kind of extrapolate my experiences with, you know, disordered personalities and kind of seeing him come along in 2015. You know, for a while there, I disengaged from politics. When I started to come back into it, it was more along the lines of just kind of background noise. And as he was kind of picking up steam, I would hear him talk. And the voice inflection, the cadence, the defense mechanisms, all these idiosyncrasies of his disorders was very similar to the people that I had experienced in my personal life. And, you know, as that was coming along, that's when I started to realize how dangerous, you know, a situation that we were entering into, you know, as he was picking up traction, because, you know, I had seen the devastation that occurred in my personal life. And, you know, you kind of play that out on a national and even a world scale, and it had a potential to be really bad. And it ended up being that way. So first, no one is at their best with a newborn or a toddler in their house. So I can only imagine doing what you were trying to do as you had a brand new child at home must have been that much more difficult. But yeah, I do want to get into what you've called polypsych. Now, obviously, I, I've been in politics most of my life, and I took many political science classes, which are really a study of elections past or political trends of the past. Sometimes folks get into what's going on currently, but what you're talking about is really a political psychology. And so you mentioned some of the things you saw about Trump, but what was it that first struck you? Was there one thing that Donald Trump said or did that sort of brought you up and said, oh my gosh, I've seen this before. I know what this is. Well, as far as the polypsych, you know, psychology is a study of human behavior and there's no greater petri dish to study human behavior than the American political climate. And so, you know, that's, you know, part of what kind of drew me into that as far as Trump. And this is, you know, a lot of the reception that I've had on Twitter and people who have responded to things I've written, some of it on a personal level, some of it just kind of being able to articulate experiences they've had in their personal life and using Trump as kind of a, a general background to draw them in and to help them understand. Because a lot of people, they were severely triggered by Trump. They couldn't quite understand why. And it was because they were instinctively sensing, you know, this toxicity and this destructiveness because of some prior experience with, you know, whether it was a parent, whether it was a, an ex-spouse, with somebody who had, you know, similar cluster B personality disorders, which is 
borderline histrionic, antisocial, which is basically sociopathy, and then, you know, narcissism. Those are the four cluster B disorders. So what you're saying in a nutshell is that Donald Trump unleashed on the country writ large all of these things that maybe millions, tens of millions, even hundreds of millions of Americans had experienced in their interpersonal lives, but on the biggest stage in human interaction. Yeah, I think for a lot of people, the people who were immediately repelled by him, I think it was because for a lot of them, they had that prior experience. They knew it exactly, you know, when they saw it. For a lot of other people, because they didn't have those experiences, I think they were more susceptible and it's not cut and dry, but for a number of reasons, they were more susceptible to being manipulated or to kind of slip into, you just had a recent episode about the boiling frog. You know, they were more likely to kind of go along with as things were getting chipped away, whether it was constitutional norms or whether it was the coarseness of the discourse, whatever it may be. So I think a lot of people, they didn't have that awareness of it. And that's why you saw so many who were willing to kind of go along with it, even as it progressed into a more, a darker and more chaotic place. Well, we've had Mary Trump, the former president's niece, wrote a book about Trump last year and was on this show and was very helpful to our efforts last year. And one of the things she says in her book was that Trump, from as early as when he went to school, kindergarten, elementary school, was that his biggest trick that I think he's carried on even through this day was that he would go out and do the craziest thing that anybody could think of. And no one would stop him because no one could figure out what he was doing or why he was doing it. And people just stood there. No one did anything. They just stood there agape. And I think that you saw that, too, with the Republican Party is as someone who knew most of the 15 candidates that stood on the stage with Trump in 2015 and 2016, they were incapable of understanding what was going on because it was so totally different than anything they'd ever experienced before. So do you think we saw that too, is that just he sort of just rolls through and knows that very few people, when the time comes, will stand up to him? Yeah, for sure. And I think part of it too is we tend to look at dysfunctional people through the lens of functionality. And so... Part of it early on was, well, the office will change him, right? He'll become more presidential. Well, that's not going to happen. And I knew that wasn't going to happen from the get-go because that's not consistent with the disorders, right? He wasn't going to come around on that. One of the things that stands out to me with the, you know, the recent mask thing, and you saw this you know, with the Tucker Carlson thing recently, is that you know, imagine if Trump's narcissism had caused him to react in a way to masks to where it became pro-mask. You know, imagine if early on Trump saw it as a marketing opportunity and a way to make money and to sell MAGA masks rather than politicizing it and turning people anti-mask. You know, if he had sold, you know, 74 million people voted for him, you know, how many of those people have kids that, you know, that also need masks and how many masks have we all used in the course of the last year, you know, 15 months, whatever it may be. If he had just seen that through his own narcissism and selfishness as a way to make money, imagine how many lives would have been saved had he been selling these MAGA masks, you know, five bucks a piece, maybe he makes a couple billion dollars. You know, it could have completely changed the direction of the country. You know, that's one example of how his narcissism has damaged the country. You know, it's tough to have a leader whose primary and sole interest is always about their own gain or their own self-preservation. So when you started this process of sort of analyzing Trump, like take us through how it worked first. And then second, did your opinion evolve over the four years of his presidency? You know, at first it was just a cathartic process. I didn't start writing on Twitter until I think it was February 28th of 2018 was the first time I, I tweeted. You know, initially it was just, I would be sitting there, I'd be watching TV, I'd be, you know, seeing the analysis of what was going on. And it was frustrating why nobody else seemed to be seeing or understanding what I was 
seen through my own personal experiences, you know, with, with previous disordered personalities. That was kind of the frustration. As I started to write, you know, it just became very cathartic. It was almost, you know, a need for me to understand what was going on through my own writing. And as people started responding very positively towards it, then it became not only a positive outlet, but some meaning and purpose in that process. So 2018, a couple of years before he's going to stand for re-election, between the time that you started writing and you took to social media to share your thoughts and election day of 2020, was there any change in your thought? Did you reconsider? Was it worse than you thought? I'm just trying to get a sense of, you know, longitudinally how you thought about him from both your personal and professional perspective. Well, I would say no, because, you know, in 2018, I remember writing, and I just recently included it in a, uh, a thread, but in 2018, I wrote, there will be violence. That's probably what would have occurred if Trump hadn't won the election because he'd already convinced his base that the system was rigged. It was in his favor. His election and perhaps imminent removal only delayed the violence. And so, you know, I kind of suspected as we were leading up to the 2016 election that there might be some violence because his narcissism would not allow him to be beaten fairly or by a better person. It always has to be unfairness. It always has to be, you know, it was rigged or he was cheated out of it because his psychology will not allow him to lose fairly. So before we come to our next topic, I want to talk about where Trump is today. He's a retired man living on a pension in Florida. And I think it was last night on Fox News that Trump went on and said that Mitch McConnell should step down as minority leader for the United States Senate. He's got an enemies list for 2022, and he's willing to take on people in his own party if they upset him. Where do you see him going from here? Is Donald Trump done in your mind, or is he... He doesn't seem calculating to me. I mean, he seems based in retribution. Where do you see him going in the coming, say, weeks, months, and years before we get to the next time he could actually inflict himself on the country? I don't think he runs. He didn't want the job in the first place. I think it was more of a marketing campaign. It was a way to kind of build his brand and monetize it. I think there were stories about, you know, Melania being pissed off when he won and Pence's wife, you know, you got what you want, Mike, you know, that type of thing. I've read stuff about that. He didn't want the job in the first place. He definitely didn't seem to enjoy the job. And obviously he likes all the trappings that come with the position. He likes the attention. He likes the narcissistic supply that comes with it. But I don't think, especially, you know, another three and a half years from now, he'll be older. I don't think he wants anything to do with being president again. However, he wants to constantly be in the spotlight. He wants the attention. But I think there's also a criminal defense angle from there, because if there's indictments coming down, you know, from New York or Georgia, wherever it may be, he needs to at least have the idea out there that he's going to run again, because then his criminal defense is that, you know, it's a deep state conspiracy. It's politically motivated. They're only trying to come after him criminally to take him out of the 2024 election because they're afraid that he'll win. And, you know, the only way they could beat him in 2020, according to him, is by cheating. And so the only way that they can beat him in 2024 is by taking him out criminally. Let me ask you this. Let me throw you a little bit of a curveball. What's the psychological profile of all these Republican members of the U.S. Senate, maybe people like Mike Pompeo or Nikki Haley, who all desperately want to run for president? All of them know that the others are running for president. They're calling their supporters. They're calling donors and saying, if Trump doesn't run, you know, I'm going to be there. But in the meantime, they basically have to hew to whatever craziness he says. So what makes a person do that? Politicians are very transactional and they're very self-preservational. And so they're going to say and they're going to do whatever they have to in order to not turn the base on. You know, they're all trying to walk that fine line of 
they're trying to still have, you know, one foot in respectability and, you know, common sense or moderation and one foot in moderate land because they're trying to kind of walk that line. And in the process, they seem to be losing footing in, you know, both worlds. So we've got the folks who, you know, don't want to cross him because they're afraid of his wrath and the base. But what about the folks who support Donald Trump? 60% of Republicans believe that last year's election was rigged. There's no evidence of this, but they continue to support him. I mean, what is it about Trump? I don't think there's one blanket statement. I think for some of them, a lot of people initially didn't necessarily vote for Trump. They voted against Hillary. At some point, that vote against Hillary became an indictment of their morality because of Trump's lack of morality. You know, when they started to sense that there was this persecution against them or that their morality was being questioned as a result of voting for Trump, you know, I think they went into this need to basically exonerate themselves, to exonerate their morality. And one of the ways to do that was to exonerate Trump. And the place to go in order to do that was to go to, you know, the right-wing media echo chamber in places where they could find morality confirming narratives about Trump because, you know, if they can exonerate him, they could exonerate themselves. For other people, there's an unwillingness or an inability to see Trump as he is because it forces them to basically see themselves in a light that they don't want to see themselves. That's uncomfortable. In your most recent article on your Patreon page, you address the ideas of grievance politics, perpetual victimhood, and so-called cancel culture, and how many of these ideas are the pillars of the new Republican Party that is part and parcel of Donald Trump. So why do you think these ideas resonate so readily with so much of the country? Well, I think as far as the grievance and the victimhood, one of the things about society is that we tend to give victims a pretty wide latitude. And I kind of touched on that in the article with the Castle Doctrine and the Stand Your Ground Doctrine. When somebody is being victimized or when somebody is being assaulted, you know, society kind of tends to rally around them. And, you know, I think part of it is even though the country is still 60% white and that's going to change by 2045, we're going to be, you know, minority majority country. You know, that segment of the population is acting in a way as if that is already occurring or they're responding to the imminence of that demographical change. I think that Trump's grievance politics and his, you know, perpetual sense of victimhood, I think that relates to them because of the path that we're on towards that demographical change. And we've seen that idea starting to get picked up in the Fox echo chamber. So what you're saying is, is that the demographic shift that has not actually occurred yet, but it is a shift in process or in progress. And Trump and these folks are utilizing that feeling of unease to drive this grievance and this ugliness deeper and deeper into their people. Yeah, absolutely. And so in your mind, at what point on the map did we take a turn that allowed us as a country and as a society to get to this point where this sort of grievance is so readily accepted? You noted at the top that Trump isn't necessarily the cause of all this, but he is an accelerant. What, in your mind, was some of the stuff that got us to where we are? Well, I think, you know, oftentimes we define ourselves by our enemies, right? It allows us to feel good about who we are based on who we hate or who we oppose. You know, I wrote something, there's an article called The Gated Community Mentality, where, you know, I kind of reach it back towards the end of the Cold War. You know, when, when we became the lone superpower, when we no longer had the external enemy to define ourselves by, right, the communists or Russia and all that stuff, you know, we started to look inward for that enemy. And we really started to define ourselves. And that's a big part of the culture war, right? We define ourselves by the values that the culture that we embrace. And, you know, we demonize the lack of values that the people that we oppose or that we hate either possess or don't possess. 
So, Nick, I have some in-laws in Southern California, and the last time we visited there, I saw a gigantic black, blacked-out Range Rover, you know, probably a $125,000 car with a Don't Tread on Me sticker on it. Now, I couldn't see the gentleman, but it also seemed to me that this is a person who'd never been tread on in their lives. And so what do you think the sociological or the societal effects are of Trump giving license to so many people just to be assholes about everything? I wrote something, uh, I think it was 2019, a Scottish psychologist had asked something about animal cruelty. And one of the things that I noted in that article was that, you know, there are certain animal species that will behave in certain ways that, you know, if that behavior was done, in, you know, with humans, it would be considered sociopathic. You know, at our core, we're still animals and we still have these animalistic instincts, whether it's self-preservation, our fear response. And this is one of the things that comes through with a lot of the, uh, you know, the fear monitoring through the media is that instead of our more advanced areas and processes of our brain with our cerebral cortex, it tends to trigger the amygdala, which is where we experience emotions in the brain. And so I think what happens a lot of times when people are constantly on edge, when people are constantly afraid, they start to uh, react in ways that are highly self-preservational and in some ways inhumane or even, you know, some ways sociopathic. And so we're seeing a lot of people, otherwise decent people, that we wouldn't necessarily expect to see that from, but we do. And we've seen this throughout history, too, is that individuals become objects, which are things. And therefore, if you're doing it to someone, then it may be more difficult. If you're doing it to something, maybe there's less of an emotional response. And so you mentioned briefly, and I want to get to this, where do you see the media? What do you think we can do to counteract and reduce the effect of, you know, more of the right wing ugliness? How do you start to pull otherwise normal human beings, including some of my friends and family, away from that? What can break the magnetism of that sort of constant conspiracy-based world that they seem to just want to revel in? Yeah, I'm not optimistic about that. I, I wrote something a couple of days ago that, you know, I think one of the ways we, we try to manage that is, you know, we have to get away from the deprogramming language and the brainwashing language. And one of the things we're dealing with is that both sides think the other side has been brainwashed, right? You know, the right thinks that the left has been brainwashed by the mainstream media and the, the left thinks that the right has been brainwashed by Fox. And so that doesn't leave a lot of room to operate when both sides, you know, we're just living in two completely different informational ecosystems and two different realities. The other part, you know, it makes it really difficult is that even if you are able to have, you know, a personal relationship or come to some type of common ground or some type of de-escalation with somebody in your life, you know, a friend or a family member, you know, as soon as they get back, they plug back into the informational ecosystem, it's, it's validated and it's affirmed, you know, the things that they had just kind of maybe walked back from. So it becomes really difficult. One of the things that's interesting is there was actually some research that had showed there's some neuroanatomical regions associated with physically painful experiences that exhibit increased activity when experience, when people experience social exclusion or social separation. And so you know, these findings indicate that it can literally become a painful experience when people disagree or speak out against groups with which they consider themselves members or that they derive an identity from. And so this would indicate that there are physiological components at play that cause people to prefer to be comfortably wrong or incorrect rather than uncomfortably right or informed when being right or correct would put them in contradiction with a group with whom they share an identity. So, Nick, what you're saying is there's a physical response, not just emotional, not just psychological, not just political, but a physical response to being challenged on one's beliefs if you believe 
that it will somehow separate you from the group that you believe you belong to. Well, potentially, right? This is one study that would suggest that it's not necessarily a physical response if you're challenged, but it would suggest that, you know, the same areas of the brain are activated similar to when there is physical pain. This might create an aversion to objectivity or moderation. If there's a pain avoidance involved, it would incentivize groupthink or collective narcissism or, you know, confirmation bias. When you think about it in that terms, right? And so now a lot of the the outrage and, you know, engaging into a lot of these things, for many, there's this dopamine response, right? There's this reward system where, so if you think about it on the front end where you're constantly engaging into, you know, brush when he was around or now it's Tucker or whatever it may be when what you want to be true is being affirmed or validated by, you know, the outrage machine. And as soon as you plug into that, you're like, aha, see, you know, I'm right. And you're getting that dopamine hit on the front end. And then on the back end, there's a pain avoidance response to disagreeing with that same group, right? In many ways, you know, if you think about, you know, dopamine is like a cocaine hit, it's associated with cocaine. And on the back end, when there's, you know, a pain avoidance, that's similar to like an opiate withdrawal, right? So you're getting a hit on the front end of it. And then if you start to, you know, back away from it or, or separate yourself from the tribe or from the group think, you know, now there's a pain avoidance and similar to an opiate response, the way that you kind of avoid the pain from the withdrawal or the removal or the separation is you just go back into engaging what alleviates that pain and also provides that dopamine. But let me ask you this. To use the drug analogy, the first hit of an opiate is the strongest, but the harder you chase it, the harder it is to get to it. Do you believe there's a similar thing like that, which is the more of this you consume, the more of this conspiratorial QAnon, whatever it is, you know, you want that dopamine hit, so you keep going deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. Yeah, well, I think we've kind of seen that play out with people switching from Fox to OAN or to more extreme versions of right-wing media, right? It may not necessarily have to be more of it, but we see it play out with, you know, more intense conspiratorial stuff. As far as the QAnon stuff, you know, one of the overlooked factors of QAnon is that there's an interactive crowdsourcing component where people compete and receive a reward, that dopamine reward for being the cleverest, connecting the furthest dispersed dots and for most absurdly advancing the story the furthest or the quickest. You know, essentially QAnon has basically become a multi-million player Dungeons and Dragons-like choose-your-own-adventure game that is metaphorically being played within the confines of a doomsday cult escape room. And so, you know, I think with the QAnon thing, there's this high they're getting off of trying to solve the problem or come up with a more extreme version of the conspiracy and also provides that dopamine. So then in closing and going back to what you were saying about the dopamine rushes and the need for belonging, the potentially feeling physical pain of separation, if we shouldn't use the words brainwashed, what do we call it? I don't know, that's a good question. I, you know, I think that maybe rather than putting an emphasis on that individual, right? Because as soon as somebody tells you that you're brainwashed, one of the implications is that you're not smart enough to avoid being manipulated, right? You know, and one of the things, I think it was David Frum had a good line I'd listened to one time where he's like, people will, you know, they'll be more pissed off at the friend or the family member who pointed out that they were conned than they are by the person who conned them. The person who conned them, you know, conned them, but you told them they were stupid. You made them face the reality of it. That's right. You, you told them they were dumb, right? That they were stupid. And so try to maybe redirect the emphasis on the source of information and maybe the fact that it's disinformation. And rather than making it personal in a personal attack and putting them on, you know, on defense of themselves or their intelligence or their naivete or their gullibility, 
keep the emphasis on the source of the information rather than the person themselves. And that's going to be tough because people, they have, no, you know, an identity investment in, you know, whether it's Tucker or whether it was Rush, you know, people grew up on Rush. So, you know, you try to tell them that he was full of shit or he was lying or whatever it was, they take that personally. So, you know, that's not always easy to do either because of that personal investment. Well, Nick, I think we're going to leave it there for today. And thanks for coming on. Before we get you out of here, where can listeners find you online? And is there anything in particular you want to make sure our listeners know about? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Nick underscore Carmody, C-A-R-M-O-D-Y. But I also, uh, I try, I don't get around to rewriting every Twitter thread, which probably are, you know, numbers close to 200 at this point. But I try to rewrite those articles on Patreon, no paywall. I mean, it's Patreon backslash Nick Carmody. I try to write, you know, pretty consistently. And so, uh, you know, there's a lot of information there. Well, we will certainly be following along as you continue your journey and we continue ours. For folks out there, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen. And I want to say thanks again to Nick Carmody for coming on today. And to those of you listening, I'll see you on the next episode. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list and subscribe to our newsletter, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Sinical and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 9 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. See you on the next episode. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.